welcome. We are back for the final show for uh, of Behind the Lens for 2018. I can't believe the year is already gone. It is just moved along beyond swiftly. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the lines with filmmakers of every genre, directors, writers, the master artisans, and craftsmen, such as production designers, costume designers, editors, sound guys, um, you name it, we got them for film, for television, often for music, and also books and stage on occasion. So I am just, today, today's going to be, we're going to go out with a bang, an awards bang uh, today. Our live guest joining us at the midpoint of the show is going to be producer Benjamin Wisner, he is producer of Thunder Road, acclaimed around the globe on the festival circuit, uh, grand jury winner at South by Southwest, nominated for Film Independent Spirit Award, John Cassavetti's Award. John Cassavetti's Award is a favorite of mine. That award, at Spirit Awards, is given to a film, the best feature film, made for under $500,000, and that award goes to the writer, director, and the producers. Here with Thunder Road, we've got four producers, but the writer-director is Jim Cummings. Not the voice actor Jim Cummings, mind you, but a young, talented actor, writer, director, and editor Jim Cummings. So we're going to talk to Benjamin at at the midpoint of the show, but before then, let's talk awards season, and let's talk... Something that is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Mary Poppins returns. In theaters this week, people, the embargo uh, lifted last week uh, on Wednesday. So I still couldn't talk about the film on the show last Monday. But we're going to talk about it today. And i got to tell you, number one, as anybody can guess, Dick Van Dyke steals the entire film. Sit there, and when he comes on screen... I'm sure many of you will applaud, you will yell, you will scream, you will cheer, you will be so delighted. And then to see him dance up on a desk, which he hopped up to in one leap, uh, is something to behold for this Nonagerian and Disney legend. Um, The film stars Emily Blunt, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Colin Firth, Meryl Streep, Emily Mortimer, Ben Wishaw. It's And, of course, Angela Lansbury is one of the most beloved characters in the Mary Poppins book series, The Balloon Lady. And that's something very important with this film because we follow the continuing adventures of the grown-up Banks children uh, that Mary Poppins must come and save once again. Uh, but a lot of the stories and the adventures are pulled from some of the book series. It's a seven-book series just as... A.A. Milne had a seven-book series of Winnie the Pooh uh, and all the Pooh stories. Uh, If you have not, if you have children at home of reading age, or if not, just for yourself, I can't encourage you highly enough to get the books because delving into the books is pure magic. And to read the books, see the books, explore the books in conjunction with this new movie, it is a wonderful, wonderful experience where literature and film come truly come together. Um, the film is, it has an animated sequence. A lot of the film harkens back and has touchstones to the 1964 original with Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. Um, some of the adorable things that you'll see, there are attic sequences where there are little things that used to be in the nursery in the 1964 that are now gathering dust In the 2018 Mary Poppins Returns, you will see sidewalk chalk drawings as a nod to Bert, uh, which was the character played by Dick Van Dyke in the original. In addition to playing Old Man Dawes in the original, uh, now he plays young Dawes, who is now Old Man Dawes. So he's essentially reprising one of his characters here. 
I was very fortunate to speak with some of the very talented filmmakers, including Rob Marshall, and exclusively speaking in exclusive conversations and interviews with James Woods, the lead character designer in charge of the animation for the animated sequence, which is referred to as the Royal Dalton Ball. And any of you collectors out there may be familiar with Royal Dalton uh, porcelain and figurines. And it's exquisite, it's beautiful, and it costs a lot of money. Um, So a Royal Dalton bowl plays a very big part in Mary Poppins Returns and allows Mary Poppins, Lamplighter Jack, and the Young Banks children to go to the Royal Dalton Ball, which is all animated and using the 2D hand-drawn animation technique that we all love and loved in the original Mary Poppins. Um, also, I spoke with Sandy Powell and John Murray. Sandy Powell, the incredible costume designer. You know her work from Carol, from Cinderella. Cinderella, where she found that incredible Umissima fabric that created Cinderella's blue gown. Well, she's equally magical here with Mary Poppins Returns and turns to canvas, painted canvas to design costumes. John Muir, uh, he, amazing production design here. Uh, Big set pieces, small set pieces, and a very significant single item that you're going to hear about in one second. But right now, let's start with some clips, starting with Rob Marshall, where I asked him during a press conference, how did he find the balance between touchstones to 1964 and creating new memories for 2018? Well, congratulations to everyone. An incredible, incredible job. I felt like I was back in 1964, Philadelphia, with my grandmother watching the original. And I have to say, Lynn, you as Jack, every time you're on screen, your smile is happiness. <laughs> but my question is going to go out to Rob, to Mark, to our composers, our writer, producers. I'm curious how you found the balance of touchstones to the original film. Because within here, I see the chalk drawing in the third act that appears on the sidewalk. You look in the attic and there are little placements through production design of things that were in the original nursery. Then you have your musical, your instrumental passages within the score itself, so beautifully integrated with Let's Go Fly a Kite, even Step in Time. So I'm curious how you all determine the balance between the nods to the past while taking us forward into the future. It was the balancing act. Do you mind if I just jump in? It was the balancing act of the whole film and the creation of the film the entire time. That's what we were doing. I really felt that everyone who was a part of this needed to have the first film in their blood in some way because that's what we were following. And so we were looking for that balance throughout the entire time we were working on this film. And, you know, I, I use myself as a barometer, I have to say, because I thought, well, I have... You know, what would I want to see? I would want to, if I came to a sequel to Mary Poppins, I would want to see an animation sequence with live action. And I would want it to be hand-drawn and in a 2D world. I would want to see that. I would want, it, I would want Cherry Tree Lane to have a curve to it because that's the Cherry Tree Lane we all know. I would feel disappointed if it was a straight street. I mean, it was as simple as that. Although we were finding our new way, there were things, there were sort of goalposts or signposts throughout that we needed to hold on to because it's in the DNA of the material. I knew there needed to be, John and I really wanted a big, huge production number that, that Mark and Scott wrote so beautifully uh, with, uh, with uh, athletic dancers, men with Mary and Jack, Jack leading the entire piece. That needed to be in there in some way. I would feel that if it wasn't there, we've gone off track. So it was a way of, it was this insane balancing act of, of, of honoring the first film, but at the same time forging our own way, our own story. Setting it in the 30s helped that. Having Michael and Jane grown up and seeing what's happened to them and how that and what and their journey and and the, the, what they've lost along the way helped that, but it was it was constantly back and forth. And I have to say, I just used my own gut about what needed to be there, 
what we needed to reflect, pay homage. <clears throat> Mark and Scott were incredibly careful uh, about making sure that we didn't abuse using themes from the first film. It's so easy to use. We used it in very strategic places throughout the film. Most of it actually very much at the end where we feel we'd earned it by then. And that's what Mark was very careful about doing. So, but it was all that. I feel like, you know, the whole time it was that. But I did feel that we were coming from the right place. And that was the key. And I can't wait for all of you to see it. Now, I teased you a little bit and said there's one interesting little thing in the film that you really want to hear about. And that is Mary Poppins' umbrella. So take a listen to this wonderful exchange uh, between, because I interviewed Sandy Powell and John Mary together, uh, at which is, it's quite fascinating and fun to do that because each one also is amazed and has questions for the other one that they were unaware of while they were working together on the film. And Mary Poppins' umbrella is one of those things, but... Guess what? It's not VFX, people. It's an actual animatronic. So listen to John talk about creating the Parrothead Umbrella. Something that I was a part of that that I'm very proud of, too, was uh, Mary Poppins' Parrothead Umbrella. Yes. Because it, it, we didn't refer it all to the original movie. Everything in our movie wanted to be dipped in reality. Mm -hmm. So I wanted it to look like it was something you'd find in an antique store. Yeah. So... It had to be carved out of wood, and if we could put in some ebony, and if there's some ivory, and maybe some little little metal filigree to it. So we made it looking like a really beautiful, real umbrella. But we also wanted it to be magical. So it, it's, it's an audio animatronic. It actually spoke and moved <laughs> and winked on set. And... That's something. So, so you could hold it, and the battery pack was hidden, and all the transmitters were hidden. Did somebody within. else operate it, or did Emily operate it herself? No, no, no. There was a there was a puppeteer. Oh, right. That was oh, that I was right know. next. That would actually. I at, didn't at, even know that. Well, so it could it could turn its head, it could yeah. wink, it could speak, obviously. Uh, but we had a really good little puppeteer with it that would that would do at the beginnings. Once we started shooting, we were doing pre-records, but initially he could just talk and make it work. And we were three weeks into the movie, and it took a long time to get done. And once the movie starts, it's very hard to show things to a director. So I'd been standing around for three yeah. days trying to show this officially to the director. But he was going to shoot in a couple days, and he had to see it. So I walked by him while he was shooting on Cherry Tree Lane in the midst of a very busy scene, and I just handed him the cane, handed him the umbrella. And he said, what is this? And it, the, the, the parent looked up at Rob and said, hello, Rob. How are you doing? Uh. And wait. And Rob went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He called, stopped everything, called the children over, and the kids had a three-minute conversation with Mary Poppins' cane. Okay, that is your crowning achievement. That, yeah, why, where's the parrot? Why is he not being interviewed? I yeah. don't know. The parrot's very shy, though. How many were there? Well, there was actually only one that fully functioned. Wow, so that's There was probably, only one. Okay, so that's under uh, lock and key right now. It's somewhere. probably under lock and key. And, yes, we're all still wondering, where is that one animatronic power... Uh, talking parrot head umbrella it probably is under lock and key and you can hear sandy powell's amazement as well in there because she was unaware and then to find out it was not emily blunt in character making it work but actual actually a puppeteer very similarly to the robotics involved with bb-8 and and r2d2 uh when we have had the pleasure of chatting with them uh, at press conferences in the past for the Star Wars movies, and I'm sure we will get to again next year. But a big part, as it was with the original Mary Poppins, the animated sequence is is always a pure delight for young and old uh, alike. And here at the Royal Dalton Ball, the task of lead character anime, uh, design fell to a young man. Uh, we know his work. He worked on Moana. But now he really, he's called a task here. 
uh, to create 137 different character designs for this short animated sequence in Mary Poppins Returns. So take a listen to my interview with the delightful James Woods, who I know we are going to be seeing so much more from in the animation world. Take a listen. So, what happens to a boy like you when you get at a very young age and you find out you're going to work on Mary Poppins Returns yeah, well, as a character animator? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was the, the lead character designer on the film. So, I mean, I was in London in was it, April 2016. Uh, one of the art directors or production designers I worked with on a previous production um, called me up one day, Jeff Turley, and um, said, oh, we have this uh, this uh, animated sequence we want to get together for this Disney live-action film. Would you be interested in kind of meeting and talking about it? So, you know, I, I, I met with him, and then two months later, I'm moving out to L.A. to go and work on this big production, which is, yeah, a wild dream for me. So, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm so lucky to be, be a part of it. Absolutely. Uh, so, so I was always so excited by that, uh-huh. and to see what is on screen with this film, it's fun. Yeah, thank you. And we got our dancing penguins. Exactly. I couldn't imagine the film without them, though, yeah. so they had to be there. So, how did you approach the animating characters mm-hmm. for this? Because obviously, everybody's going to compare this to the original Mary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the same 2D animation style. Mm-hmm. It, you tweaked it. It's a, yeah. little, it's a little more modern. So I'm yeah. curious your approach so, to developing this 2D animation. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I initially getting the call, definitely the first thing I did was look at the original movie and um, take note of the different characters and that kind of uh, line quality that they had to them. And even the Disney animated films around that time in the 60s, such as 101 Dalmatians, uh, Sword in the Stone, all of that kind of really etched, um, stylized, kind of almost angular look to Disney animation back then. Taking that um, and then applying my own design language with that to kind of bring it to a 2018 audience where it felt as if it kind of referenced and and, um, paid homage to the original it was new for an audience of, I guess, the new generation that are coming up today. And um, as you said, the penguins are in there, definitely looked at the originals for them and then thought about just, you know, tweaking and catering them to a world that also spoke to the kind of ceramic watercolour um, look that the, the se- sequence takes place inside of the Royal Dalton Bowl. Um, yeah, so yeah, definitely referenced the original, but I have a specific design taste that I wanted to kind of pump into that a little bit too. Sandy Powell's costume design mm-hmm. and John's production design. I'm curious for you, does that impact your animation? Yeah. Especially when we're talking about the colors that Sandy came up with mm-hmm. for the costumes, most notably those purples. Right, yeah. You know, that, you know, very that, dramatic. Very and, dramatic and mm-hmm. shifts from everything else in the film. Yeah. So I'm curious how that impacted your work. Yeah, well, I mean, so it was me, um, our sequence production designer, Jeff Turley, and uh, an environment designer, Sunman In, who we all kind of worked together. We were specifically in the office, uh, same workspace with John, um, for a couple months at the beginning of pre-production. And I know that uh, Jeff and John had a lot of back and forth about, you know, the the kind of sets that would be created. And on my behalf, getting to design the characters... um, we were being sent reference to the work that Sani had been doing and trying to um, put that into our world too so it felt as if our animated world kind of was in synchronicity with the live action portions so I mean we knew that um, when the actors kind of enter the Royal Dalton world it's this kind of airy summery kind of feel to it and so pastel tones and these kind of uh, bright colours were kind of used during that section of the sequence and then as you know, it turns to nighttime and they go inside of the Royal Dalton Music Hall, trying to add more kind of jewel tones to the characters' costuming that kind of felt more dramatic and a little bit vaudevillian and, um, you know, selling that, that big musical number that Rob's putting together. How many characters did you have to create? Oh, 
So, no, I, I, I actually did take one day to count them all up. So I did 137 different character designs, which then the animators then took to then animate themselves and I had to populate further. So a lot of the additional background characters were kind of a mishmash of two kind of maybe different body shapes or sizes that had been set in the design, design period. That are solid individual drawings or different individual characters, I know that for a starting base it was 137, which, again, when I was in London in April 2016 coming onto this film, I didn't imagine that it would be anything at the scale. I thought it was going to be a very limited, um, just a kind of small piece in the movie. And so uh, being there for it, maybe I, I blacked out as they were kind of telling me what the scene would involve or that it was so overwhelming. Just seeing it grow and kind of realizing, wow, this is a really mammoth task we're taking on. Was one, I'm so lucky to have been a part of it and been trusted with that, and two, just yeah, wow, that we get to create these worlds in 2018 when the stuff like this doesn't really happen anymore. So yeah, it was great. I was lucky. I'm, I'm curious for someone of your youth, and I understand a lot of the retired Disney animators came back mm -hmm. for this film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you had a chance to interact and work with them. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of them um, are still working to a capacity in the industry and um, in the pre-production phase. So we spent about nine months in pre-production before the film really went underway with animation. And during that time, uh, James Baxter, who is um, a veteran animator who... Uh, created characters like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. He actually animated that famous sequence of Belle and the Beast dancing together in the ballroom and we see the camera come from the chandelier and kind of moves around them. The very so, first time there was reflection in an animated Exactly. Game. So, And that year was my, that film came out my birth year, so that kind of coming around full circle to work with this guy who, James Batty, he's, he's a British animator even, so just this personal kind of connection of him being my hero on so many levels and then uh, getting to learn that I'll be working with him is it, it was mind blowing to me and so um, after I'd done a lot of the designs we kind of brought him on to have his skill and his experience take these drawings and designs and figure out exactly how they would move um, some of the extremes these characters would be pushed through especially in the dance number so how far they would be able to stretch their legs or how compressed they would get into motions and in animation, you're going to see these characters from every angle as well. You see them from every awkward angle, like a back three-quarter or whatever. So um, he would kind of take my drawings and then create something called a model packet, which is posing these characters in X amount of ways and X amount of expressions, which he would kind of then hand back to me to um, do like a style drawover on top to really hone it back to the, the style language we had going on. And getting to kind of work in tandem with him was... I mean, I learned so much from him, his experience, and... He's the kind of animator who has, despite his experience, has no ego, is so excited to um, work in different styles and kind of give momentum to a different kind of style language. And so um, I'm so lucky to have wanted to work with him. I, I learned so much from him. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite character that you animated for this one? I do. I mean... Oh, I kind of feel bad as well because they're like my babies. Each one has like a different story for me because mm -hmm. as I'm animating, I want to, or as I'm designing, sorry, I, I want to think of each character's kind of backstory and who they are. So there's maybe some who, I don't want to give them away because it's almost like precious kind of things to me, but maybe one character is reflective of somebody that I know in my personal life or a situation that happened in that moment, but... I have a definitely a, a warm spot for Seamus, the, the horse coachman. He's kind of our hero in the, the green coat. Um, definitely a soft spot for him. I I also love there's a little uh, King Charles Cavalier who we see in the background in a little kind of wicker sun, uh, summer hat. Who She's kind of sitting a few away from Mary and Lynn and the children in the music hall. She's one of my favorites, but she's such a small little background character. The dodo was really one of my favorites as well. But to the main characters, I, yeah, I have a soft spot for Seamus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, Seamus, and Seamus, I have to say, Seamus and the horse, mm -hmm. they really harken back the most to Disney's original 2D style of animation. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> you know, the coach, 
Yeah, and we were referencing um, so 101 Dalmatians, which came out in the six. I'm not sure if it's before or after Mary Poppins came out, but it came out in the 60s. Um, we were referencing very much that style of etched, kind of stylized, angular line, and specifically Cruella Deville's car in the sequences um, had this very kind of architectural kind of uh, look to it, but with these very distinct um, statement lines around the edges. And so Jeff Turley, our production prop designer, um, was really referencing that in terms of uh, traditional uh, aesthetics on a vehicle, mm-hmm. i.e., looked at, you know, horses from classic Disney films, even like the horse in the first Mary Poppins in the barnyard, there's this kind of big Clydesdale there, um, you know, uh, the, the horse in Sleeping Beauty, um, all of those horses, just, I think almost every Disney animated film has their hero horse anyway, so I wanted to make a new Disney hero horse, um, and having Seamus, you know, tying closely with the dogs from 101 Dalmatians, um, wanting to have him feel almost like he could have belonged in that cast himself anyway. You know, they're all kind of living in this Disney traditionally animated world, so, yeah, I'm glad that you think that those guys oh, were yeah, very in much. line with... Oh, great. Very much. Uh, you know, my so, job. It's something I'm really curious about, James, because with all the animated films and all the animators I've talked to, and mm-hmm. it's always such a big part of Disney that, okay, the animals, even when you're animating them, Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was kind of figuring out all of their designs, we knew that we had this menagerie of different shapes and sizes to kind of play around with. And so initially we went to, so at the studio we're based at in, well, at the Disney Studio Burbank, we went to the local LA Zoo around the corner for a day to go and sketch the animals there and, you know, get an idea of all the different shapes and sizes we could include. And then from there, Google is everybody's best friends these days to then go specifically into uh, a breed of dog or different type of animal and break down their anatomy and really know what's going on with their facial structures to then know the rules of that animal to then be able to break them and put them into an animated anthropomorphic kind of state. Um, I mean, even characters like the flamingos, um, Mm -hmm. they have to be able to perform human dance moves that have legs that bend the opposite way because that's a flamingo's anatomy or, um, you know, their their wings kind of splaying out and seeing how we can marry those animal quirks with the, um, just the animal's uh, makeup and nature Mm -hmm. um, and finding humor and playfulness in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you get to pick the colors that you used for each of the animals? Um, pretty much. I mean... Uh, I kind of set a kind of style tone with the the initial character designs, which um, in the animation would be tweaked and kind of go on f- further there. So I was able to set a palette, definitely with the main characters, with the uh, with the surrounding kind of audience members and, and characters we meet in the background on the way to the Royal Dalton Hall. Or um, there were specific moments where the colours were very true to the designs I I picked, and then. A lot of the ones kind of on the outskirts we needed to, to populate the space were kind of riffed off with the colours that I'd set. But I mean, we were also going from Sandy Powell, the costume designer's notes, of knowing that in the outside Dalton sequence, um, it's kind of this summery, bright, pastel world. And as we go into the music hall, it's this um, more nighttime, kind of vaudevillian, dramatic, jewel tone kind of. Uh, pops in the darkness but also creates this drama to go hand in hand with this big you know Broadway number um so yeah I I got to set the colors definitely for the main characters in the sequence and Mm. hopefully they came out nicely so now that you have done a Disney movie uh huh not just any Disney movie yeah very Poppins yeah Oh, what did in, I learn about myself? In the process of mm-hmm. doing this animation, mm-hmm. you can now take forward into future work. Um, what I learned about myself, I mean, I kind of discovered that I do have a voice and a style. Um, I think it's everybody is what a set ha- uh, handwriting, and if you were asked, like, what is your handwriting, you wouldn't be able to kind of speak to what it is, it just kind of is what it is. And so I'd always kind of seen my design style as 
just something that it was what it was, but now understanding that it's a specific design style and knowing that um, people are responding to it and uh, that, that I have a voice, especially as a young designer, have, knowing that I have the potential to have a voice in the industry, um, learning that, but also learning um, just the value in all of this teamwork that we were doing because while I got to design the characters, they were having to work with the environments designed by the environment designer and um, then having to be a certain shape and way that an animator would be able to play with them um, and learning to kind of have this universal um, purpose for my designs that goes beyond just it being a drawing that it then is translated into a, a character with kind of autonomous feelings and, and uh, its own nature. So, I, yeah, there, there's characters in this which... Um, I look at and think, oh, that is this very specific kind of now person entity that I've created, and uh, seeing the preciousness in that is it's so exciting to me. Um, so many people that kind of made it come together. I mean, just being on the design side, we then had our animators, who was a team of a hundred different artists, kind of you know making each uh, character move, and it takes twenty-four drawings to do one second of animated footage. And so um, all of those guys putting their heart and soul into making these characters interact with the live action, um, then painting the backgrounds, putting the colors in place, um, having it sync with the music and feel like it's one giant cog in this in this m movie as opposed to lots of different things kind of fighting each other. It kind of, it really wo works together in harmony. And yeah, I, I'm so proud of what the team kind of we all put together. So I'm so proud of my part too. And I can't wait for all of you to see James's beautiful, beautiful work. Well, now, and of course, Mary Poppins, four Golden Globe nominations already. Who knows what Academy Award nominations uh, morning will bode next month for the film, uh, as well as Guild Awards. But you'll be able to find all of these on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, over in the next over the course of the next week or so. Uh, as well as other outlets that around the globe that pick up my interviews. So right now we're going to switch gears to another. We're, we're going to talk to another already an award nominee for Spirit Award, John Cassavetti's award, Benjamin Wisner, here to talk about Thunder Road. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you, and congratulations on the Spirit Award nomination. That I was there the morning. Oh, thank you. I was there the morning of nominations, uh, and when it was announced, and I was beyond thrilled. You are in a great, great category. Number one, I think the Cassavetti's Award is one of the most significant awards in independent film, considering that John Cassavetti's truly is the father of independent film in the eyes of so many. But you've got, you've got a great company of nominees going on here. You know, were you surprised when you found out about the nomination? Uh, no, we were honored, though, absolutely. I mean, Cassavetes is somebody who's meant so much to us, but we actually had another film, A Bread Factory, from our company that I worked on as well that was nominated. Okay, well, now you've got to pick between children. You know, do you want? Yeah. <laughs> do you have a preference? Which one you'd like to see? Uh, like to see pick up the award? Oh, I'm just happy that we'll all be there together with the teams. And I have to say, a bread factory, an amazing, amazing film as well. Two totally different films, and you know, and I love that. That neither one is pigeonholed, and they are two totally different films, which shows the diversity of, you know, you, your company, you know, and as a producing team, what you're looking for and what you're helping put out there for everyone to see in the independent film wor world. You know, with regard to Thunder Road, you've been on this journey since Jim Cummings first wrote and directed it as a short film, correct? Yeah, I think my first phone call from Jim about the short was in, like, July of 2015. Mm-hmm. And what did you... And he gave me, like, an eight-minute version of the monologue, just sitting there crying on the side of the road. And I was just, like, immediately, okay, yes, we, ne we need to put you in front of the camera and get this done. You know, when when did you guys decide, you know, 
let's make this a feature film because obviously, obviously, when you start when you have an eight or nine minute monologue that kicks off a film, sets an emotional tone. There's something there. There's something that leads up to that eight or nine minutes and comes after it. So when did you guys realize we got a feature film here? We didn't think we did for a long time, actually. Oh, you silly boy. What happened was we were thinking of it as these must be the most important moments of his life. And it took us so long to realize that if the film's about him being a father instead of being a son, and that that monologue, the eulogy at his mother's funeral could be really an opening instead of the way we think of funerals usually as a closing. Um, and it was pretty much an all-out sprint from there. Once we came up with that idea, Jim sent me the first version of the script about four days later. Oh, my God. He doesn't waste any time, does yeah. he? You know, I, No, there's a little bit of a mania to what we do, I guess. <laughs> you know, how do you as a producer, and obviously you were going to stay on board uh, with the feature film after coming on board with the short, how do you sit down then with your co-producers and tackle the logistics of bringing this feature film to life? It's really about looking at what your team can do and really having a a really ambitious version of that in your mind. So for us, it was an opportunity where we had shot uh, nine more one-shot short films between Mm -hmm. Thunder Road, the short, and Thunder Road, the feature. So a lot of those were with the same cinematographer, production designer, all of these different team, team members that we knew what they could be bringing. And so it's just trying to find a way to uh, wrap all of your efforts around what your team is best at and make sure that you're getting the most out of that instead of, especially in low budget film, like we're in, you can uh, make a film that's completely restricted or you can make a film that's really freed by that lack of, uh, I guess, rules. Mm-hmm. Money, money usually comes with rules so if you don't have the money you don't, at least have the freedom <laughs> and that pretty much summarizes the joy of independent filmmaking it's hard when you don't have <laughs> yeah. the money but on the upside you don't have any rules you really get to set your own rules with each film that you're making and I've always thought that when you don't have much money it forces you to be more creative in telling the story and bringing it to life. And you know, something. And the answer is always in the story then. That's it. That's just it. And here, that's one of the interesting things about Jim's character, whom he plays, Officer Jim Arnaud. Um, he has a, he's in every scene in the film, number one. Number two, he's got very lengthy monologues, not just at the funeral, with a quote-unquote eulogy, but throughout the film, lengthy monologues, and he's directing. What does this do to you and your blood pressure as producers when you have that many, you have more than one lengthy monologue, you have your writer, your director, and lead actor, and a co-editor all rolled into one? Does that give you trepidation about how this is going to go forward it's one thing on a short film. It's another thing on a feature film. You know, is that a concern for you guys? Or how do you work with that logistically in terms of your shooting? And, you know, Jim's in front of the camera. He obviously can't be behind the camera at the same time. Do one of you step in? What's this process like? Well, and I think that's such an advantage that we have as how much our teams work together. So this is Jim's first feature as a director, but it's mm-hmm. our fifth feature together. Mm-hmm. So we we have that kind of level of trust and everything like that. So when he was in front of camera, there were three of us, Natalie, who produced the film with me, myself, and Danny Madden, who is a director in his own right, who creative directed this and sound designed it. And we we know what Jim wants out of it. We knew what the goals were and when it was good enough and we could move on or when we needed more from that character at that moment. So it, it worked pretty seamlessly and it's a lot less meals that you have to cater if you have one person doing four or five jobs. 
<laughs> yeah, but are they getting four or five paychecks? You as the producer need to worry about no. that. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Yeah, someday. Yeah. Someday. Someday. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. you know. That's the nice thing about uh, doing our self-distribution. That's when we'll get the paychecks. You know, how more I'm seeing, talking with more and more producers and filmmakers who are now looking into self-distribution. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yay, nay, is it uh, inhibiting, is it, you know, freeing? What are your thoughts on self-distribution? I think it's about being realistic. Um, for for us, we knew we could do as much or more than what other companies were going to be willing to do with the film. And so when we had our meetings with the A24s or whoever, the, the cool kids, the people you would want to sell your movie to, right. They were pretty point blank in saying that to us, where they knew what our team could do, what we've done with films previously, and kind of the passion we were going to bring to marketing it. Mm-hmm. That we we feel like we got a much more impactful release by doing it ourselves than if we were the fifteenth biggest film from another company. Mm-hmm. You know, did have you cherry picked where, as you have gone on your releasing for self distribution? Have you cherry-picked the theaters and the cities that the film has released in? Oh, absolutely. And we had a great partnership with Alamo Drafthouse as well. We did a week-long exclusive run in a bunch of their theaters across country. And then just finding these programmers at different uh, small theaters, they have their own audience. People in their communities trust them to be presenting these films. So we can show up on a Sunday afternoon in Winchester, Virginia, and there's 125 people there who are really enthusiastic about the movie, but they're only there because there's this great person who is introducing these films to their city. Are you finding these great programmers becoming few and far between, or are we getting starting to see a, a real appreciation for in programmers who do who can handpick cherry pick little gems like Thunder Road? I'm seeing more and more of it, and these film festivals are also starting to run their own theaters, which I think is a really hopeful thing. So I think as there's kind of that bifurcation between big films who have $30 million to just get in the movie in front of an audience Mm -hmm. and these smaller films that are really reliant on people loving them. Uh, But but I feel like what we were able to do in terms of going to all of these festivals, to all of these screenings, was to kind of turn people into people who wanted to support us, wanted to... share it with their family and their friends. Um, and that's such an important thing for the life of an in- independent film is that the appreciation can't stop when you leave the theater. It has to be taken as kind of this like crusade that if you love a film, uh, you need to be introducing it to other people. Mm-hmm. And we've been fortunate that I feel like with uh, the audience that we've been able to meet and what they've done for the film afterwards. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth is so important. So important when you're talking about independent films. Um, yeah, I, more and more so, I hope. Yes. You know, what What has been the reaction to Jim's performance in this film? Because he is in the, in, the, in, the entire film. So I'm curious what some of the public reaction has been that you've gotten as feedback as to this character. He's a lonely man. He's an extremely emotional man. And he's hitting what is more or less a midlife crisis, but not really midlife. It's really the death of his mother that sends him into this tailspin. So I'm I'm curious how the public, how the moviegoers are, what their thoughts are when they see this man unfold on screen. And he truly does unfold in spiral for a good part of the film. Uh, I feel like there's that adjustment period, kind of like the first couple of jokes of the film. You're not sure if you're supposed to be laughing yet or what what your reaction needs to be. But I, I feel like one of the things that the film does really well is allow you to 
really soak into whatever feelings you're bringing into the film that day. If you're feeling like you need a comedy because it's been just a long month or a long year that there's uh, as much as there's the drama and the downfall, there's a lot of these little moments that you can really um, appreciate and laugh at and laugh at yourself in. Um, Or if you're kind of needing to understand more human drama, I think you can interpret it that way. And there's, there's that latitude and trust in the audience. Um, so I think people have been surprisingly, uh, willing to follow Jim wherever they need to go. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say one of the, one of the most endearing sequences that bodes its own special humor uh, is the daddy daughter, you know, uh, sit down for dinner. Should we order pizza? And then she wants to play the hand clapping game and poor him as a dad. He doesn't get it. And as I'm watching that, I'm thinking every dad out there is watching this now. And they're thinking, Oh my God, I need to learn this. And it's just so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's innocent. It's funny because you see Jim gives him, he has this blank look on his face of, Oh my God, what am I supposed to do? And you can just imagine. I mean, if I had done that to my father growing up in the 60s, he, he, would, have done, he would have sat there and tried to like move his hands to clap. And then he would have said, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And here we see that with Jim. And it's very funny. But then the next morning, he delves in and he tries it again. And that's one of the... One of the endearing qualities about this character that he that Jim Cummings has created is that this guy doesn't give up. He keeps trying. He doesn't know why, but he keeps trying. And that really resonates, I think, on screen. Yeah, and it's just that difficulty. It's something he's desperate to be able to do. Yeah. And- yeah, I think there's that difficulty of how do we how do we bridge this? Um, and of course, it's effort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that, that that's the thing that uh, you you have to be there and you have to show up and you have to do this thing that uh, was really inspired by his mother mm-hmm. and the way that he was brought up. So I don't know, just that watching a character learn, I feel like can be so rewarding as an audience member. Yeah. I mean, and you see it repeatedly where, you know, he is learning and he is growing. I'm curious, what was the most logistically challenging aspect from a producing standpoint in bringing Thunder Road to life as a feature? Um, I think it was pretty much just, stopping listening to people when they told us no and that we shouldn't make it and it wasn't going to be successful. Uh, We had over 75 meetings about the film where people uh, just didn't think it was going to be good enough. We submitted the script to Blacklist and I think it got like a three out of 10. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think people could see into the film and see what we saw in this character in this situation. Uh, so once we kind of took that uh, courage to say, okay, no, this is good enough. We know what we're doing. We know how to make this film. It's not that it was easy to make. We had like 14 and a half days to do it in and everything like that. But because we had done all of these other projects together, the the film itself wasn't the hard part. It was realizing that... Um, we didn't need a green light. We didn't need anybody else to say yes. We had the crew members. We had the uh, people surrounding us that were willing to uh, be a part of it. Now, is financing a, uh, an issue with a, with a film like Thunder Road? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's the frontier for everybody. It's where, the one thing that nobody really knows how to set themselves free of. You know, where So what we did look? is we... We ran a Kickstarter, and that was something that we were trying to bring in $10,000 in the first, like, six hours that happened. And then we had this momentum where we were able to raise, like, 
$37,000 instead. And that got people interested to come and chip in a little bit more for a percent here or a percent there. Um, but it was, yeah, it's duct taping it together. I mean, we didn't, <laughs> didn't have much, but we knew we didn't need much. We knew what we could do without money if we just had the time together. Mm-hmm. I like that description, duct taping it together. I've always said there is nothing in life you can't do if, if you have duct tape. So obviously we're duct taping yeah. <laughs> financing now too. So, I mean, just amazing. You know, what is, what is it about, what do you look for as a producer? If a script comes your way or somebody says, hey, I've got an idea. What is it that you personally look for as a producer? I want it to be human. I just want it to be surprising and something that can uh, really show people um, something about themselves and something about the world. I think uh, scripts that are introducing new areas of the country and everything like that are kind of exciting where... So much of what we see is set in New York or Los Angeles, or it's kind of these stories. I mean, we have, I think, the only 30-year-old with a mustache that isn't a hipster in any film <laughs> in the last decade. I, think <laughs> so, that I don't know. I, I just want to reflect um, what I see as I travel cross-country and what, I, what we've all seen as people who grew up in the South. Mm-hmm. And that, that's one of the charming things here um, is that you do have that heartland, southern, you know, family feel to it. But you also very keenly with the production design, you don't pigeonhole a location. So this film could easily it could be taking place in upstate Vermont or Maine or New Jersey or, uh, you know, California or Washington. That I, I think that works to your advantage when you have this, this, you know, uh, very this look that isn't pigeonholed. We wanted people to be able to see themselves in it, no matter where they were coming from, and I think it's something too that's really helped us with uh, what the film's been able to do overseas and the response we got in France, where over seventy-five thousand people went to the film in theaters, where it kind of is something that does play in addition to as a comedy and as a drama, there's this sense of almost documentary that this is something that's really taking the pulse of, um, of what's going on right now in these places that we don't cover in the same way Mm -hmm. um, and aren't always on TV. Were you surprised by the reaction in France to this film? I mean, we were blown away by just how thorough that support was, but we also knew that that was going to be one of the biggest places for us, that we've had past success there, our shorts have been doing very well there, but also it's like a very physical comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very like Jacques Tati, it's Charlie yes. Chaplin, it's all of that stuff. So as much as like we play our little word games and try to have fun with the dialogue and all of these different um smaller ways we also try to keep the comedy really physical um so that people from all sorts of different uh backgrounds can can see uh who this puppet of a person is i mean i have to say jim's physicality comedic physicality is wonderful and i mean it really a lot of it for me was reminding me of jerry lewis in some of his more inane situations of you know blending comedy and drama together and it's a joy watching Jim in you know in character when he just breaks down and cries and you know he's indignant and then the next moment it's like his arms are flailing and the ugly face comes out you know when you're a kid it's you know no don't want the ugly face stop crying no ugly face but we see this coming out and you cannot help you laugh when you see it but at the same time you feel you feel the pathos of what this poor guy is going through and that he just cannot deal. Uh, but he executes that physicality so beautifully. Uh, and I think that really helps elevate um, the tone of the film. 
we used that as really a cornerstone for us of how we could kind of build the language of all of these different emotions and kind of use those hinges between them. Yeah. It was a really nice tool to walk into and know we had, uh, had that to be playing with always. So now what is next for Thunder Road? I know that I will see you on the beach in Santa Monica in February, but where where is the film going from here? Um, so this spring we're going to be releasing in uh, another like twenty countries theatrically. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's something that we're really excited about is getting to share this film with more and more people. Um, and and we hope that it continues to just like get shared and live on. It's uh, I'd I'd love to start doing a yearly screening of it for Mother's Day, that type of thing, where giving people an opportunity to see this film together. Like I'd I'd recommend that so highly if people are going to watch this movie, get it on iTunes or anything like that, to just like invite four people over. Mm-hmm. It feels so wonderful to be going through the film and you're laughing while the person next to you is crying and then mm-hmm. you're switching places 30 seconds later. Yeah, it's it's very it's very interpretive. It, it based on your own personal perspective. And you know, I and I like that about the film. What digital platforms is the film on right now? It's on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon anywhere that you uh buy movies i think it's on direct tv even and all of that type of thing you're just you're just cornering the market here i mean trying you know (laughs) gotta put it in front of people (laughs) well again we're all out of time today benjamin i can't thank you enough for coming on i congratulations again on all the success with the film so far but of course you know the film independent spirit award john cassavetti's award nomination that's huge and I can't wait to see you and the rest of the team on the beach in Santa Monica in February to talk more about it. Looking forward to meeting you in person. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Benjamin. Bye-bye. Take it. Bye. And that was producer Benjamin Wisner talking about Thunder Road. And obviously, when we get near the Spirit Awards, you will probably hear more about Thunder Road on behind the lens at that point. And hopefully at some point we'll get uh, get to talk to Jim Cummings in the future uh, about creating this incredible character and the film as a whole. We are almost out of time here, are we not, Pam? Two minutes. No, we have no, we don't even have two minutes. Less than two minutes. Uh, do you want to, well... No, we won't do that. So, unfortunately, we didn't get to hear Sandy Powell and John uh, go into detail about costuming and production design. But that will be on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And also, I was hoping we might have time to hear more on Mary Queen of Scots from costumer Alexandra Payne, who talks about designing every costume in the film with denim. Yes, people, denim. With everything from light chambrays and stretch denims to 16-gauge denim. Everybody wears denim. It's And uh, the result looks wonderful. As you look at the film Mary Queen of Scots, you will see that a lot of the texture of the denim, it actually has the look of a moray silk. Um... So you're going to have to find out all about Alexander Payne's costuming on BehindTheLensOnline.net as well as Jenny Shearcore's uh, makeup and hair design, which the wigs are spectacular, as is the makeup, particularly on Margot Robbie uh, in Mary Queen of Scots as Elizabeth goes from beautiful Queen Elizabeth to smallpox-infected Queen Elizabeth and then scarred for the rest of her life well that is all the time we have today this is our last show of 2018 i thank you all for listening i hope you will all join us on january 7th when we are back for year five of behind the lens in the meantime follow and like us on facebook 
Behind the Lens, or on Twitter, BTL Radio Show. So until next year, I am Debbie Elias, and this is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 